So it's Acts 13, verses 23 to 43. First sermon I've entitled to the Jew first. Follow along as I read. From the descendants of this man, meaning David, according to the promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people in Israel, and while John was pleading his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose, that I am he? I am not he. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us this message of salvation has been sent. For those who lived in Jerusalem and their rulers recognized neither him nor the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these things by condemning him. And though they found no grounds for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus, as uh, it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he was raised up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he was spoken of in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, and he was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him everyone who believes is freed from all the things from which he could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed, so the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your day which you would never believe, though someone should describe it to you. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. <coughs> Corey Gill Schuster is a professor who teaches conflict resolution and mediation at the Tel Aviv University in Israel. But he's better known for his Ask Project videos, which he posts on YouTube. In them, he takes questions which are sent in by the viewers, and he goes out into the streets and asks Israelis and Palestinians these questions and then records their responses. For instance, what do you think of suicide bombers? Or, do you support a two-state solution? Do Jews have a right to live in the land of Israel? Should Palestinians in exile have the right to return to Israel? Now, some of the questions are not political, they're more personal. Would you as a Jew marry a Muslim? Are you happy? Why did you move to Israel? He even asked questions about religion, though he says he's very careful when speaking to Muslims about it. But of all the videos that he does, the two that I found the most interesting were when he asked Jewish Israelis, who is Jesus to you, and what do you think of Jesus, Mary, and Christianity? Now when asked, most of the people simply pause with a puzzled look on their face before they answer. Said one Israeli woman, well, that's a hard one. 
A cousin? No, I, I don't know. I, I guess he's nothing to me. I guess he's for people who consider themselves Christians, but for me, he's nothing. Another middle-aged woman was asked, why don't Jews believe in Jesus as the Messiah? She shrugged her shoulders and said, I'm a religious person. I believe in what Judaism gave us. Jesus arrived thousands of years after. He was a Jew who went after a different religion and founded a different religion. Well, who's Jesus to you? A figure for people who don't know how to think on their own. It's just a story for people who have not been taught to think critically. Who's Jesus for you? Yeshu? He's part of Christianity. He's not connected to us at all. We believe in the Torah. We have our own laws given to us. Jesus was a Jew who became a Christian. They live in this fantasy that he walked on water. We don't believe in Jesus. He's nothing to us. Said yet another. We have our own tradition, which is very ingrained. And part of that is not believing that Jesus is the Messiah. We have a very different picture of what the Messiah is. When it happens, in the future, it's going to fix the world. The world will be as it's supposed to be when Messiah comes, and it hasn't happened yet, so it's pretty simple. What do Jews think about Jesus, Mary, and Christianity? Said one older man dressed in black with a long gray beard. We think nothing. It's not relevant to us. We have no doubts about the beliefs that we have, so we're not interested at all. What you ask is not relevant to be asked in a synagogue. Now, I think that last man was wrong, very wrong. Jesus claimed not only that he was Israel's long-awaited Messiah, but that he was the very son of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And while the question of Jesus' relationship to the Jews may not come up in a modern synagogue in Israel, the issue did come up in an ancient synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. For there, when Paul was invited by the synagogue officials to give a word of exhortation, he preached Christ, Jesus, to, as Israel's long-awaited Messiah. Now, as we saw last week, in the first part of Paul's sermon, he gave a summary of Israel's history leading up to King David, to whom God had made a promise that one of his descendants would become the Savior of Israel. Today, we want to see how Paul proclaimed Jesus as the fulfillment of that promise. So I encourage you, in your trust in Christ and in your witness to others, we want to consider these verses this morning. So let's pray and get into the text. Father and God, I do pray for grace and mercy as we look at this. Help us to see what Paul proclaimed. It really is an old message, but it's the one that everyone needs to hear. And so I pray that we would hear it today. And I pray for those who listen over the internet and also in the radio broadcast that they would hear. So bless now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the key to understanding this passage is found in verse 23, where Paul says, From the descendant of this man, meaning David, according to the promise, God has brought a Savior to Israel. And so our first thing that we want to consider is the preparation for the Savior. And this is found in verses 24 to 25. Now in one sense, God's been preparing the world, and Israel in particular, for this coming Savior since the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden. Remember that in the midst of the judgment that God pronounced upon man and the woman, he also promised that a seed of the woman, that is a descendant of hers, would someday crush the head of the serpent. I would guess that when Cain was born, he was hoping that he was that promised descendant who would reverse the curse and restore Eden. But alas, he was a son of the devil and he murdered his brother. Well, later we find out that this promised descendant would come through the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. One of them was Judah. It was from that tribe that David was born, Israel's second king. Of course, the law 
and the sacrificial system given to Israel were designed to prepare them for the coming of the Savior, their Messiah. I mean, the law showed Israel why they needed a Savior, that they, like all other people, were sinners in need of grace. And the sacrificial system put forward the concept of substitutionary atonement, the idea that an animal could die in your place in the place of the guilty sinner. But all those animal sacrifices pointed beyond themselves to that ultimate sacrifice. And that's why when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Well, when an important dignitary of a foreign country comes visiting, they make preparations for him. Did you see in this last week in preparation for the arrival of Chinese President Xi Jinping, the city officials of San Francisco cleared out all the homeless people and washed away all the filth on the streets in the area where Xi was going to pass through. Now, funny how they couldn't do that before he got there. Well, John the Baptist was sent to do a cleanup job on the nation of Israel in preparation for the arrival of their king. What needed to be cleaned up was not the streets, but the lives, the moral lives of its people. And that's why Paul says, John proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. You see, that's the way you get ready to meet Jesus. By turning from your sins. The reason so many people reject Jesus is because they don't want to turn from their sins. They want to cling to him. Like a drowning man who won't let go of his bag of gold weighing him down, they sink down, down, all the way to hell. Now John's preaching made a, a deep impression on many in Israel. And some began to wonder if he might be the promised Messiah, but he disavowed that idea. Paul tells us that while John was completing his course, he kept saying, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he, meaning the Messiah, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So this, this coming Savior was not merely a good man, not even just a great man. He was the God-man. John was sent to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. That brings us to our second point, though, the rejection of the Savior. And this is on verses 26 to 29. Paul says, Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us this message of salvation has been sent. See, Paul went to the synagogue to preach Christ because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first as God's chosen people, and then to the Greek. But the tragedy of tragedies is that when Israel's Savior came, came on his own, they received him not. Now initially, though, Jesus was very popular. The people were impressed by how he spoke as one having authority and not as one of their scribes. And he performed miracles, causing the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, the blind to see. He even raised people from the dead. Rightly did the people say, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel before. Many were hoping that he was the Messiah and that he would lead a rebellion against the hated Romans. But Jesus didn't come to rescue Israel from foreign oppressors, but to deliver them from their own sins. And the more he talked about that, the less people wanted to hear. The tide of public opinion turned against him, and leading the charge were the religious leaders. Paul says in verse 27, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers recognize neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, and they fulfilled these things by condemning him. You see, the religious leaders not only rejected Jesus, they hated him. They hated him because he exposed their hypocrisy. You read a number of times in the scripture where after they receive a stinging rebuke from him, it says that they went out seeking how they might destroy him. Well, of course, they thrilled, were thrilled when one of his disciples, Judas, 
came and offered to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And yet they didn't realize that in their conniving against him, they were actually filling, fulfilling the prophecies made about the promised uh, Messiah in the Old Testament. They were so blinded by their hate that when he stood before the council, the high priest asked Jesus point blank, Are you the Messiah? The Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. He said, what further need do we have of witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Mark 14, 61 to 65. You see, the high priest would have been right in charging Jesus with blasphemy if Jesus wasn't the Son of God, but he was the Son of the Blessed One. They condemned him as worthy of death for telling, him, telling them the truth of who he was. They would have stoned him right there, but they didn't have the authority to do so. That's why Paul goes on to say in verse 28, and though they found no grounds for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. Pilate knew that he wasn't guilty of sedition, of inciting a riot on Capitol Hill. Three times he said, I find no guilt in this man. But the crowds cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And then when they threatened to report him to Caesar, he buckled and gave in to their demands. Like most politicians, he wasn't concerned with justice. He just simply wanted to retain his power. Verse 29 says, When they had carried out all that was written about him, by the way, the Messiah's crucifixion, that he would actually be crucified, was predicted in Psalm 22. I have to tell you, when I went down with Dina's cousin years ago to a synagogue, he had to do that for a class that he was taking, a comparative religion thing. He asked me if I knew where there was a synagogue, and there was one from the not far from the restaurant where I was working. But when we went there, I looked through the readings that they had. And it's interesting because it went from Psalm 21 to Psalm 23. They just took it out. And then I went to Isaiah 52. There was no Isaiah 53. And then it went to 54. Well, we're told that they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. Well, that was Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea who removed Jesus' body from the cross and then laid it in Joseph's own family tomb. Well, this fulfilled the prophecy in Isaiah 53 where it says, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet in a rich man in his death. If Joseph hadn't come forward, they simply would have dumped Jesus' body in a common grave with the two other criminals who were crucified that day. That brings us to our third point, though, the vindication of the Savior. This is in 30 to 31. Now, the verdict of the Jewish leaders was that Jesus was a false prophet and a blasphemer who tried to lead Israel astray, and that he deserved to die. But you know, in our justice system, if you lose a case, you can appeal to a higher court, and sometimes all the way up to the Supreme Court, which may overturn the lower court's decision. Well, that's what happened with Jesus. The religious leaders condemned him, and then put him to death. But God overturned their verdict and their sentence when he raised Jesus from the dead. Death cannot keep its prey. Jesus, my Savior, he tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose the victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to raise. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. But God. You know, those are two of the sweetest words you'll ever find in the Bible. But God remembered Noah. Concerning their selling him into slavery, Joseph said to his brothers, As for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. 
And later he said, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from the land to the land which he has promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul reminded the Christians in Ephesus that like their pagan neighbors, we too once lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and our mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were yet dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Ephesians 2, 3-5. Before he made us alive together with Christ, so he had to make Christ alive. His enemies might have condemned and executed him, but God raised him from the dead. You know, when Jesus was challenged by the religious leaders as to his authority when he cleansed the temple, they asked him, they said, what sign do you show as your authority for doing these things? And he said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. They thought he meant the temple in Jerusalem, but he meant his body. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ultimate vindication of all of his claims. But you know, it's not only the vindication of his claims, but it's the stamp of approval on his sacrifice. Romans 4.25 says, He was delivered over because of our transgressions. He was raised because of our justification. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Death is what we earn for our sins. But Jesus never sinned, so he had no debt to pay. When he died, it was not for his sins, but for ours. Taking the punishment that we deserved, he satisfied God's justice and paid off our sin debt. And to show that he was pleased with and had accepted that payment, God raised Jesus from the dead. And so the moment a sinner trusts in Christ, God stamps across his bill, paid in full, but the words aren't written in ink, they're written in blood. The blood of Christ. And this resurrection didn't happen in some ethereal realm somewhere out in the cosmos. Jesus came out of a tomb in Jerusalem. It says in verse 31, And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones <coughs> who are now his witnesses to the people. Well, that brings us to our fourth point, though, the proclamation of the Savior. Here it says in 32, And we preach to you the good news of the promise that God has made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus. Remember on the night that Jesus was born, angels appeared to the shepherd in the field. They said, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give the second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. That song has more deep theology than any other song I've ever read. God the Father raised up Jesus in Israel's history, but he also raised him from the dead so that Christ would not only conquer death for himself, but for all who trust him. And as Paul made clear, this was prophesied in the Old Testament. Look what it says in verse 33. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As the second person of the Trinity, Jesus was always eternally begotten by the Father. He's always existed as the shining forth of God's glory. But in the incarnation, he was begotten in time 
by when the Holy Spirit caused Mary to be pregnant while she was yet a virgin. But Paul is thinking about Jesus being begotten at the day of his resurrection. Speaking of Jesus in Romans 1, 3-4, he says this, that it's God's gospel which concerns his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, but was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Paul wanted to make it clear to those in that synagogue that day that Jesus is indeed God's son, but he wanted to drive home the point that this son of God was the resurrected one. And so he goes on to say this in verse 34. As for the fact that he would be raised from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, saying, I will give you the sure blessing of David. Now David was promised that one day one of his descendants would sit on his throne and rule forever. But how could anyone do that? Because all of his descendants who lived after him died. Some good kings, some bad kings. And even Jesus died. But Jesus was raised from the dead. So he's the only one who could rule forever. Paul goes on to quote from another psalm, Psalm 16.10, where he says this, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now this was spoken of David, by David, written by David, at a time when he was being persecuted. And so when he says, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay, now that you, you, if he were just talking about being preserved from his enemies, he would have said, You will not allow me to be killed by them. But he doesn't say that. He's talking about the state after death. After death, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo a decay. And then Paul points out the obvious fact. He says this in 36. For David, after he served the purpose of God and his own generation fell asleep, meaning he died, and was laid among the fathers, and he underwent decay. You know, the abolitionists saying, John Brown's body lay a moldering in the ground, or in the grave. Well, David's body lay moldering in the grave as well. So he couldn't have been speaking of himself. But he who God raised from the dead, did not undergo decay. You know, when I was in high school, I played the drums in band. I did so because that's the instrument that takes the least amount of talent, especially when you're playing <coughs> the bass drum. But sometimes, I would get to play the crash cymbals. And that was great because you always had the one important part at the crescendo of the piece. Just as a side note, whenever we did that, just to annoy Mr. Kearns, the band director, I would be off by half a beat. <laughs> well, in verse 38, Paul reaches not only the crescendo, but also the conclusion of his sermon when he says this, Therefore, let everyone, or let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, meaning Jesus the Savior, everyone who believes is freed or justified from all things from which he could not be freed by the law of Moses. Listen carefully. You cannot be justified by keeping the commandments because what it requires is perfect obedience. When Moses gave the commandments, he said, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by everything, all that's written in the book of the law, so as to perform it. The only one who ever kept all of God's commandments was Jesus. He's the only one with a perfect righteousness. And that's what you're going to need when you stand before him on Judgment Day. So what Paul was pleading with his fellow Jews and these God-fearers gathered that day in the synagogue was to give up their self-righteousness and trust in Christ's righteousness. God has fulfilled His promise. A Savior has come. Receive Him. Believe Him. Cling to Him as your only hope. And if you do, you'll stand that day before Him and be declared not guilty. Have you done that? Have you believed the promise? Have you trusted the Savior? 
Have you received the gift of eternal life? If not, why not? What are you holding out for? What are you holding on to? Let that bag of sin go so you don't sink down, down, all the way to hell. That brings us to our last point, which is a warning and a response. The gospel really is good news for those who believe it, but only for those who believe it. Most, of course, do not. Paul warned the people in the synagogue on that day, he said, he was, as he's warning us today, when he said this, Therefore take heed, so that the things spoken in the prophets will not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone describe it to you. Now God was doing and had done a great work in those days. He sent his son to die on a cross for sins and be raised three days later. In so doing, he paid for sins and he conquered death. And so if you're asked, who is Jesus to you? And you answer, well, I guess for me he's nothing. If he remains that to you, you're going to perish in your sins. Verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people reportedly begged, uh, repeatedly begged to have these things spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up and many of the Jews and the God-fearer proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas who were speaking to them and urging them to continue in the grace of God. Now this was a good response, or at least initially it appears to be. They wanted to hear more about Jesus. And I'm sure that Paul and Barnabas left very encouraged by the response. But when they come back next week, as we will see next week, the results of their preaching brought them not only great joy, but horrible sorrow. You know, of all the questions that that Corey Gill Schuster asked, really the only one that matters is, who is Jesus for you? What's ironic is Corey Gill Schuster himself is Jewish, an atheist, who said he was a homosexual. I wonder if in all these times he's asked these Jews, who is Jesus to you, he ever asked himself, who is Jesus to me? When you die, there's nothing that's going to matter than how you answer that question. Is he nothing to you? Or is he the Lord and Savior that you've trusted? That's the only question that's going to matter when you die. Nothing else. Let's pray. Our Father and God, <clears throat> this is just a simple, straightforward preaching of the gospel. But this is the good news that we preach. That you sent your Son to be a sacrifice for sins so that anyone, no matter how vile, no matter how sinful they've been, can have all their sins washed away simply by trusting in Christ who paid the penalty that we owed. So, Father and God, I pray for the ones here who don't know you that today would be the day you'd open up their heart to respond to the gospel so as to believe. And for those, again, Lord, who are going to listen over the internet and the radio, we pray that the gospel would hit home and change the hearts so that more and more people will trust